Okay, hearing from God's word. So um, you'll have it on screen there. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 5, verse 21, um, down to the end of the chapter. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? But the woman, and he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. He strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That passage open. Um, this passage in Mark, like the rest of Mark, it's very narrative driven. It's telling a story, a story that keeps gathering pace. And the point of that story is to make clear to the reader that Jesus is who he says he is the Son of God. Mark is not particularly subtle about this point. The very opening lines of the book read as follows. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
So if you're into those films where they show you the beginning, the end at the beginning and then work backwards, this is the book for you. That's the conclusion. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. None of the other gospel openings are quite so abrupt as this one. And if you think back to the encounters with Jesus that Mark has taken us through so far, they are all pointing to this conclusion, this single reality, that this man is the Son of God. So while there's a lot of story here, and it's a great story, as we get into it and as we wrestle with it, you need to keep that single question in the back of your mind. It's a question that many were asking then, and that many are still asking today. Who is this man, Jesus? And the answer to that question is found in those opening words of his gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark sets out his thought early on, and then he goes on to make his case. We're picking up the story here with two more encounters with Jesus. So as we get inside the story, as we get into it, it would really help here to try and place yourself in the story, not just to read it as an account, but imagine you're a part of this narrative unfolding. Um, so Rembrandt, the great, the, the great Dutch master, um, the artist, he had this, this knack for doing this where he would literally paint himself into the picture. So in one of his famous works, um, Jesus and the and the, the storm on the Sea of Galilee. What we, well, we heard about that in chapter four a couple of weeks ago. In this rich painting of the ship being tossed and turned on the waves, there's Jesus asleep, as we, as we hear from the passage, and there are the 12 disciples wrestling with the ropes, wrestling with the sails, despairing at their situation. And there's, if you look carefully and count them, there's a 13th disciple in the boat, hand on head, staring out at the storm. And for anyone who knows what Rembrandt looks like, they'll see that if you look closely, he's painted his own face on this character in the boat with Jesus and the disciples. He's literally painted himself in to the story. And we're going to try and do that as we work through this passage, just to wrestle with all that's going on here. So as we do that, and children, if you're drawing pictures, this would be, this would be a great thing to do. As we jump from viewpoint to viewpoint, we're going to shift lens a couple of times. And just think about, like Rembrandt, here's your canvas, and think about who you are in the story, and try and, if you could draw me a picture of this, the different scenes that we work through, I'd love to see those afterwards, but just keep that in your mind. Try and put yourself in this story. And who better start with here than our old friends? They have had a rough ride of it, literally in the boat, but just generally with Jesus since they signed up. Remember we heard in, uh, in Mark 4, they were caught in this storm crossing the Sea of Galilee. But remember why they crossed over? Why they crossed the Sea of Galilee? Well, they were trying to get away from the chaos that was following Jesus around the Jewish region. They might have wanted to get away from the crowds that had earlier threatened to crush Jesus as a result of his preaching and his healing. They might have been trying to get away from the religious rulers who were plotting to kill Jesus. As the hype around him had grown and grown, reaching fever pitch in the Jewish region of Galilee, maybe getting away for a time wasn't such a bad idea. Lie low for a bit, Jesus. Let some of that heat die down. But not with Jesus. That is not the calling that these disciples have found themselves in. For a start, 
The trip across the usually calm Sea of Galilee for these seasoned fishermen was anything but calm. We heard about that. And then when they reach the other side, they are met immediately by a demon-possessed man. If you remember when we studied um, the beginning of chapter 5, verse 2 tells us that when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, literally his foot has hit the ground, immediately this man rushes upon him. And after threatening to crash the local agricultural economy by sending a herd of pigs off a, off a cliff, they're chased out of town by farmers and all sorts. They're, they're chased out of town completely, back onto the boat and back over they go. So perhaps some peace now, or back on home turf, but no chance. We pick up the story in verse 21. And again, seemingly the moment Jesus' feet hit terra firma, foot on the beach, a crowd gathers, a crowd swarms again. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. This must be exhausting. These disciples, remember, the, the only person sleeping in the boat was Jesus. These guys, they were fighting for their life with sails and ropes. They were up all night. They must be exhausted. So here they are, back in Galilee, back on the shore. And then, as the crowd gathers, his the crowd, here comes Jairus. Now Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. This term, it refers to someone of influence, not necessarily a rabbi, but he would have likely been responsible for both organizing and teaching in the synagogue. He was probably a Pharisee. So as we've heard so far, not exactly a fan of Jesus and his ministry. And here he comes, pushing his way through the crowd making a beeline for Jesus. Oh no, yet more drama. You can almost hear the disciples whispering to one another as the crowd swells. But then something totally unexpected. Totally not what the disciples at least were expecting. What happens? As he makes his way through the crowd, verse 22, seeing him, he fell at his feet down on the ground. This man is well known, he is respecting the community, and he's made his way through the crowd and just thrown himself on the floor at Jesus' feet. Why has he done this? Well, he's done this because his daughter lies in bed, sick, ill, ill to the point of death, and no one can help. No social power or influence can help Jairus now. He's desperate. And so he turns to Jesus. Verse 23 tells us he implored him earnestly. And strong as those words are, they may be words that we use particularly often now. Um, as a father, I'm not sure that quite captures the emotion that I might be feeling if I was in his shoes. Elsewhere, this word is translated as he pleaded, he begged. And, and that might be closer. It's please, Jesus, please come. Please, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be made well and live. So this might be the time to switch our viewpoint. So children, we've got your canvases before you. Blank canvas, we're done with the disciples. Their jaws are on the floor. They can't believe this. They thought they were for another fight. And yet this man has just thrown himself on the ground before Jesus. But now let's put ourselves back in Jairus' shoes. A man of seeming influence but now desperately in need. What's going through his mind as he sees this boat coming back to the shore? 
it's that man Jesus. I've heard about this man. I've heard what he's been doing in this region and elsewhere. I've heard what he's done for others. No one can help my little girl, but perhaps he can. Oh, but forget the party line, forget the official stance regarding this man and what I'm supposed to think of him as a ruler of the synagogue. No, I am desperate and I need him. And so he crashes his way through the crowd to find Jesus. And look at the response of Jesus to this cry for help. A cry for help from a member of the religious establishment, a Pharisee, an opponent. What's Jesus' response? Verse 24, and he went with him. That's all. There's no political point scoring here from Jesus. Oh, Jairus, you've changed your tune, I see. No, no, none of that. Just heartfelt compassion for this man and for his desperate need. And perhaps no surprise, the crowd comes along for the ride. Jairus was a recognisable public figure. He's an important man. And he's just fallen down at the feet of Jesus. It's caused quite a stir. He's begging for help. What is Jesus going to do next? So, along they go. And as they make their way back, up from the seashore, most likely towards the nice end of town, where the synagogue rulers would live, the narrative takes a sudden turn. It's like a story within a story. Do you notice? Our story derails. We're supposed to be walking from the beach to Jairus's house. That's where the little girl is. But no, we're interrupted. As the great crowd is following, verse 25, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She's part of the gathered crowd. She's heard about Jesus too. And she has suffered from bleeding for 12 years. And beyond the physical suffering, we're told, terrible as that would have been, she's suffered financially. She spent all her life savings on treatment with many doctors and none of it's worked. She's grown worse. And what's more than that, she will have suffered socially too. That's beyond what we're told directly in the text. But under Jewish law, this bleeding of hers it will have rendered her ceremonially unclean under Levitical law in the, of the Old Testament. Unclean for 12 years. So this woman will have lived these years as an outcast, isolated from her community, isolated from her family. She has no social status, none. In many ways, she's the opposite of Jairus. He is a powerful man of social standing. She is a powerless woman of social exile. But she's also the same, you see. She too is desperate. She too has come to realise that no one now can help her. The doctors aren't helping. She's spent all, all she has on doctor's fees and they can't help. And she turns to thinking, perhaps this man Jesus can. So what these two people share, their desperate need, and we sang about that just now in that song, my unending need. That is, we're in the same boat, unending need. That is what these two people share. But what they also share is a belief that Jesus can change their desperate situation. Jairus says in verse 23, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. And the woman says here in verse 28, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And in Jesus, 
the woman's faith is well placed. She touches his garment, she reaches out, she pushes through the crowd, reaches out and just touches the very the hem of his garment. And she is indeed healed. And she knows it. She can feel it. Verse 29. Immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. But Jesus feels it too. Verse 30. He sees in himself that power had gone out from him. So he turns around and he asks, who touched my garments? A seemingly impossible question in a crowd like this. Perhaps hard to remember in, in this time of lockdown, the, the notion of being in a crowd of people is maybe a bit foreign. But if you think back, I don't know, I can think one occasion, um, one year, and I, I'd hesitate, I'd, I'd add an emphasis one year, because I only did it once. I went down to the River Thames on New Year's Eve to see the fireworks. And that's a crowd. That's a crowd bustling and jostling for position to get near those, those metal railings and to watch fireworks for five minutes and then find at five past midnight, you've got to get back to the tube station, back through the same crowd, being pushed and shoved and tossed and turned. You have to really be quite intentional to get where you want to be. So think about that, that's Jairus, he's done that. He's pushed his way through the crowd to reach Jesus. And this woman has done the same, just to reach his garment. Such is her belief that that will make her well. So he's looking for her. An impossible question, but he's looking for her. So now might be a time, children, another, another canvas for you, keeping you on your toes. Time to switch lens again, now to this woman. So pause on Jairus for a moment. Disciples, Jairus, now this woman. What is she going through? She has just felt herself be healed after 12 years of sickness. 12 years. What is she feeling right now? Great joy, presumably. Relief. Thankfulness. Her years of suffering are finally over. All these emotions flooding. But then suddenly punctuated by one, one emotion. That's fear. She's afraid. She is an outcast. And suddenly, in a crowd of people, this man, Jesus, he stops, he turns around and says, who touched me? She, for she knows that's her. She's suddenly going to be the attention of this entire crowd and she is afraid. Perhaps she's afraid for social reasons. She's ceremonially unclean. She shouldn't be in the crowd. She shouldn't be touching anyone. Perhaps she's afraid for religious tradition reasons. She's touched a rabbi. She's disturbed him. He was on his way, presumably to important business, and she's held him up. And perhaps she's afraid for spiritual reasons, like the disciples in the boat were filled with great fear as they marveled at Jesus' power. Who then is this? She is afraid. Seeing that there's no way out of this situation, she faces her fear and falls down before Jesus, much like Jairus did earlier. She falls at his feet and she tells him the whole truth. And then look at Jesus' response in verse 34. Daughter. Daughter. Just in that one word, daughter. To be called daughter by the Son of God. A woman who's been an utter outcast for 12 years. She's been cut off from society, cut off from her own family. And now 
she is addressed as a member of God's family. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And that, that Greek word for well, it means both healed and saved. It means both. So it points to both physical healing, but spiritual healing. So this woman, she's been healed of her disease, the bleeding of the 12 years, that, that's gone. She's been healed of her condition, her physical condition. But she's also healed <clears throat> of her status of being outside God's family. That's a whole different condition. That's a spiritual condition. Your faith has made you well. Jesus has the compassion to stop and follow with Jairus. He has the compassion to address this woman thoughtfully as daughter. But he has the power to do this. He has the power to heal this woman and he has the power to save this woman. And it's worth noting that under the Jewish law of ceremonial uncleanness, anything that the woman touched would also become unclean. It extends to furniture, chairs, pots, pans, and certainly people. If she touches anything, they become, like her, unclean. But not with Jesus. Jesus is not constrained by the law. Jesus fulfills the law. It's turned on its head here. She touches him, and rather than Jesus becoming unclean, it is the woman that is made clean by Jesus' power. So you see, Mark is building, building up his, his canvas here. One brushstroke at a time. He sketched it out in the very first words of his gospel. This is Jesus, the Son of God. And now he's building up the picture for us. Jesus has power over nature. He calms the storm. Jesus has power over unclean spirits. He casts them out. He has authority over them. Jesus has power over disease and sickness. He has healed many up to this point. This woman is but the latest. Jesus has power and he's not done yet. So in our story, now back to you. Sorry, children, you're flipping between canvases faster than maybe you can keep up. Switch your canvas again, back to Jairus. So we're, our story within a story is drawing to a close. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now we're back with Jairus, back in the shoes of the ruler of the synagogue. And let's not forget, where is Jesus going? He was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. Why is he stopping? There are no ambulances in, in Galilee. This is an emergency. He should be running, not walking, not stopping. What's going on? Move out of the way, crowd. I need to get this man to my house where my daughter is. What's going on here? And look at verse 33. It tells us the woman came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The whole truth, the full story. This has been 12 years of her life, this condition that Jesus has just overcome with his power. But 12 years, this is probably not a short story and therefore probably not a short conversation. Come on, Jesus, my little girl, remember? We've got to go. Why is he stopping? And then, verse 35. While he was still speaking, while Jesus is yet still speaking, do you see how immediate everything is in this story? 
as soon as he gets off the boat, as soon as he finishes speaking, it's relentless. But as soon as he finishes speaking, while he is still speaking, in fact, to this woman, the news is delivered like a brick through a window, just shatters. People are marvelous. This woman, wow, she's been healed, that's amazing. And suddenly, these, these, these men from Jairus' house, they rock up. And yeah, like a brick through a window, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Oh, what rush of emotion now must take hold of Jairus as he struggles to process that, those words. Not that, he's, not that there's, been, there's no healing here. The news here is death. The raw emotion, anger, despair, sorrow. And actually, as we, as we see, what, what, what is the most powerful emotion it's a surge of fear. Like the woman, he is overcome with fear. Fear in the face of death. Fear in what it means for his daughter, his family, his life. The overriding emotion here is fear. And Jesus perceives this. Look again at Jesus' compassion. How close he is to what's happening in this story. In the face of this fear, Jesus perceives the fear in Jairus. And remember, remember the crowd. This might sound like a quiet conversation, but it's not. The crowd, probably an audible gasp of horror. <gasps> I thought Jesus was going to heal that girl. The disciples are reeling. This is, not good for, this is not good for PR at all. He's supposed to be helping Jairus' daughter. What is going on? The crowd is in uproar. But Jesus, perhaps he leans in to this man Jairus, who is shell-shocked. And over the hum of the crowd, he says quite simply, in verse 36, Do not fear, only believe. Jesus, like he, like he can perceive the power that's healed this woman, he can perceive the fear in this man. And over the roar of the crowd, his words are, do not fear, only believe. Now imagine the last leg of that journey for Jairus. He's gone all this way. He's found the man. His hopes have, have, his hopes have, have been raised and now they've been dashed. And by the time they reach home, the full process of mourning has already kicked in. The people are weeping and wailing loudly. We hear that in verse 38. And this is the cultural norm, is loud acts of mourning. That's how you show that someone has, has passed, that's how you show respect. And the wealthier you are, the more mourners you have, um, the louder the wailing is, to the point of hiring professional mourners to come and make some noise outside your house. So for the case of Jairus, a highly recognized member of society, this would have been in spades. There would have been a crowd of wailing and mourning, an absolute din, cacophony of noise and sorrow. But Jesus, he cuts through the noise here. And in verse 39, he says, why all this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now the cry of hired hands are now exposed as what they are. So, uh, so heartfelt is their mourning that they quickly turn from mourning to mocking. They laugh at Jesus. 
They laugh at him. This man is confused. He doesn't know what's going on at all. But Jesus is not confused. He's not confused. He uses this same language of falling asleep and waking up in the Gospel of John on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead. The same, the same words. Our friend has fallen asleep. I go to wake him up. And the disciples there say, Jesus, if the guy's fallen asleep, we can just slow down. He'll wake up. And Jesus says to them then, no, no, I mean he's died. But this is for God's glory. So Jesus knows the score here. He is not confused. And neither is there any uncertainty over the girl's condition. At this point, she is dead. If you want a second opinion, you can ask the doctor, Luke. He's a physician. He writes the same events down in his gospel. And he records in slightly more detail that at this point when Jesus intervenes, her spirit returns to her body. She was dead and Jesus brings her back as he takes her by the hand and says, little girl, I say to you, arise. So here is yet another demonstration of Jesus' power, power over all the brokenness of this world, even death. With the power that Jesus has, death is no more than sleep to him. So much so that he can tell this girl, it's time to wake up. Up you get. And then he can turn to her parents, who at this point we hear are overcome with amazement. Overcome, they're, they're on the floor. And he can just turn to them calmly and suggest, you might wanna make her some breakfast. She might be hungry. That is his power, his power over brokenness, his power over darkness, his power over death. I'm recalling again the words of those disciples in the boat. Who then is this? And the sea obey him. But it's not just the wind and the sea. It's unclean spirits. It's demonic powers. It's sickness. It's disease. And now even death. All must obey him. For why? For he is the son of God. So who is this man? This is the question we're asking. We spent time wrestling with the story, painting ourselves in as these characters who were running through these relentless accounts of Jesus's action on earth. And remember, why? Why is Mark telling us these stories? He's telling them to answer the question. The question, who is this man? This man, Jesus is the son of God. He is able to make well, to make well, to bring not just physical but spiritual healing, to save from sin and death. The prophet Isaiah, he foretold Jesus' victory over death and the saving of God's people that would be brought about through Jesus. So Isaiah chapter 25 verses 8 and 9 he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The tears of Jairus, the tears of Jairus' wife, they're wiped away. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him.
Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The reproach of his people. The reproach of the people is their sin. It's their rebellion against God. It's what keeps them out of God's family. And Jesus, he takes it away. He died on the cross to take away the sins of the world. And you see, his command over death, it doesn't end here with this little girl, no. It doesn't reach its climax in raising Lazarus from the grave, no. Death, we're told, is swallowed up forever. When Jesus died on the cross, the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, but he took it up again. On the third day he rose and death is conquered. Again, we sang in that song, the grave and death are conquered. He rose, the grave and death are conquered. And Jesus says of himself in the Gospel of John, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it up again. He has authority over death. Death is swallowed up forever. And when the Apostle Paul cites these words of Isaiah, he reminds us of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, death is swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So who is this man? This man is the son of God. This is our God. This is the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who this man is. So we've talked about the story, we've talked about who the man is, but the third point I want to show to you from this text is that you need this man. You need this man. So Mark, having sketched out the line in the opening lines of his gospel, he's filling in the canvas with layers and layers of colour and texture, building up this picture of Jesus as the Son of God. He's adding further definition here through these two encounters with Jesus. So the stories here are the recorded, they're not just recorded to demonstrate to you who the man is, but to make clear to you that you need the man. You need the savior who's spoken of here. Remember what linked Jairus and the healed woman. Despite their differences in social standing, their desperate, desperate need. Again, we sang my unending need Unending need links these two characters. Jairus was a man of influence. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He was well regarded in society. Elsewhere in, in the Gospels, we're told that these men were given the places of honour at banquets, the best seats in the house, and the best seats in the synagogue, sat right at the front where everyone can see them. The Jewish community that this man was part of has bestowed power on him through religion, and tradition but you see his worldly powers they do him no good none at all when he's faced with the world's hardest trials in his case the loss of his daughter all his influence can do nothing to save his daughter from the brokenness of the world without Jesus all he has in the face of losing his beloved child are frankly uncompassionate messengers your daughter is dead, and fickle hired mourners who quickly switch from wailing to laughing. 
thinking about yourself this morning. Have you, like Jairus, perhaps managed to carve out quite a comfortable, even lofty position for yourself by the world's standards? Are you well regarded? Are you well thought of? You've got friends in the right places. The best seats. <laughs> but look at how all of this comes crashing down when Jairus is faced with the brokenness of this world. I think we're back. So, well, apologies for that slight interlude. It was not, I promise, just a ploy to keep you on the edge of your seats. Check you're paying attention. We're back. So, I'll give you a quick recap. <laughs> we're just talking about our need for this man. And we just finished, finished up talking about Jairus and how we might see ourselves in this kind of role. A man of influence, a person. So, the woman healed. The woman healed of the 12 year discharge of blood. She is at the other end of the social scale. She has been cast out from societal circles by the very same Jewish community, law and traditions that have elevated Jairus. She's lived the last 12 years of her life as an outcast. Her friends and family are forced to keep their distance, leaving her alone. She's been dealt a hard, hard hand and it doesn't seem fair. Do you ever consider yourself in this camp? Overlooked by the world around you, abandoned, isolated. You've suffered much. You spent time, money, energy, all you have to make things better. And instead of getting better, your situation grows worse. Whether you can relate more closely to Jairus or the woman or somewhere in between on that scale, what this passage is telling you is that Jesus has both the compassion and the power to overcome the darkness that you are facing. You see, Jesus is dealing with the, the worldly physical issues of these two people directly, in person, which is unique to his time walking the earth. But he is dealing with their uh, problems. But what that hints at is the greater saving that Jesus is offering. Jairus is on the verge of losing his family his only child, and the woman has lost her family. She's living in isolation. But Jesus, in person, restores Jairus' daughter to him. Jesus, in person, proclaims this woman a daughter and restores family to her. So what these people are struggling with is the fragility of their earthly family. But Jesus comes to invite them into God's family. Remember that word, made well applied to the daughter in verse 23 applied to the woman in verse 34 it refers to both healing and saving physical healing spiritual healing the bigger problem that jesus has come to address is the problem of sin christ takes away the sin christ takes away the reproach of the people sin which separates us from god sin which disqualifies us from being part of God's family. The same is true of you and me. It is our sin that isolates us. It is our sin that bars us from God's family, but for the saving compassion and power of Jesus. And what is required of us is no more than was required of Jairus and of this woman, faith in Jesus. Your faith has made you well, and to believe in him, 
Do not fear, only believe. If we believe that Jesus came to die for our sin, the sin that otherwise separates us from God, then we are promised, in the words of John's Gospel, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, part of God's family, a child of God, a son, a daughter like this woman. We are healed and we are saved. But there's actually one more person that we can relate to in this narrative. We've not stepped into their shoes so far. And that's actually the little girl. When Jesus comes to her, she is dead. She can do nothing to save herself. And we are told that spiritually, we are in exactly the same situation when Jesus comes to us. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, You were dead in the sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We can't save ourselves. It is all through Christ. The little girl did nothing to save herself. It is Jesus who came, took her by the hand, and said to her, Arise. The book of Ephesians goes on to say, By grace you have been saved through faith. Faith again. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, my prayer is that wherever you find yourself currently, whether you're in the best seats that the world has to offer or you're a social outcast on the outskirts, my prayer is that God will give you this gift of faith to believe in the name of Jesus, his son, this man, the son of God, the saviour, and that by faith he will make you well, not just physically well, spiritually well in him. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that you would remember where God in his mercy has taken you from and to. You are now together with Christ, God's child, his son, his daughter. That title is proclaimed over you, son, daughter of God. And whatever trials or darkness you face in this world, in the words of Jesus, do not fear, only believe. Be assured by the words of Jesus. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. And in the words of the prophet Isaiah, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Why don't I pray for us? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. And we thank you that interwoven through these deep, rich, layered stories in the Gospels, is the truth, the truth of who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. And he came to battle the brokenness of this world. Not just the physical brokenness, the brokenness in people's day-to-day -day lives as he walked the streets of Galilee, but the brokenness in our hearts, the brokenness of sin, the reproach of the people that keeps us from you and excludes us from your family. I thank you that in Jesus we have a saviour who is perfectly compassionate and ultimately powerful to deal with the darkness of this world, to deal with the sin in our hearts, to proclaim the title of son and daughter over us. 
and bring us back to you. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus, this man. Who is this man? He is the son of God. He is our savior and we need him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.